Well, it is certainly appropriate to end our year with praise to our God. And it's also needful for us to remember to continue praising Him throughout this coming year, however many days may be remaining before us. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord and to sing praises unto His name. There are so many wonderful psalms of praise. That was just one of many that you heard this morning. But I'm convinced that praising God is absolutely a must for the church of God in the days coming. And so we want to spend some time this morning in the book of Acts. And I hope that we can gather from our study this morning a sense of importance to the idea of not just praising God, but ministering to God by praising God. And in doing so, we have then a thing that we must do besides praising Him, and that is serving Him. He's called us, all of us, to service. That takes different forms for each of us. We serve in different ways. Certainly that is true with regard to the various offices in the church, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, teacher, uh, and all of the various gifts that are mentioned in the Word of God, both in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Romans chapter 12, in Ephesians chapter 4. There are many things, there are a total of, I think, 21 specific gifts that are mentioned in those passages that I just mentioned, but that, I don't believe, is all-inclusive. I think there are many, many more things that God wants to impart to us by virtue of the fact that His Holy Spirit dwells in us, and He imparts to us those things that are necessary to work out our faith in fear and trembling before Him. The passage that we'll be looking at this morning is again in the book of Acts, chapter 13, where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And recall that two weeks ago we saw the story of Peter being delivered from the prison cell in a miraculous way by an angel who came to him and did some very, very impressive things with regard to releasing Peter from that prison cell without any interference from the guards or the gates which opened on their own accord. Remember, he went to the house of Mary in Jerusalem. And Mary was listed as the mother of John Mark. Some significant things that you need to remember with regard to that event. And also, prior to that, in chapter 11, we saw that Barnabas had arrived in the city of Antioch in Syria. And there was a great move of the Holy Spirit in that city, reaching out to the Gentile population, really for the very first time. And Barnabas decided that it would be a really, really good idea to find out where Saul was, as he had been living in the city of Tarsus over that same period of time. He sought out Saul and brought him back with him to the city of Antioch. And the chapter 11 record declares that they ministered in the city of Antioch for about a period of a year together, and the church was growing miraculously. All the people were praising the Lord and learning of the things of God through the ministry of Barnabas and Saul and others. 
Then they had taken a collection at the end of chapter 11, and they brought that collection for the help of the people in Jerusalem who were then suffering because of a great famine that had taken place in the land. They brought that offering down to Jerusalem, and nothing more is said about Barnabas and Saul, but we believe that they were there present when Peter was delivered from the prison. And it was shortly after that that these events that we're going to look at today begin to unfold. So turn again with me to chapter 13 of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 1, where it says, Now in the church there was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manhattan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Here's the setting. They're in Antioch. These are several of the leaders, and there were more besides these that were obviously involved in this ministry at Antioch. Remember, Agabus was a prophet. He would, had been there, at least. We're not told that he's there now. But he mentions, Luke does, these few that were considered to be leaders in the church. And he says some of them were prophets and some of them were teachers. I believe that some of them actually fulfilled both offices. In fact, Paul is known to be, and by the way, that's still future. His name is here in this text, Saul. But he'll soon be changed to his Roman name, Paul. But Saul was a prophet. Saul was an evangelist. Saul was a teacher. He was all of those. God used him in those functions. It's not just limited to one thing that God might call us to. There may be option for, uh, for God to use us in many different ways. And I want us to be mindful of that fact. But look at the names that are given to us. Barnabas, we know very well from chapter 4 of the book of Acts that he was a Levite. And he was from the island of Cyprus, just about a hundred miles off the shore from uh, the Mediterranean shoreline of Israel to that island nation of Cyprus. He was from that region. He had been already used by the Lord in miraculous ways. He had been sent by the church in Jerusalem to Antioch to find out what is going on up there. And it was a very exciting time for him, to be sure. But he's here mentioned as a prophet and or teacher in this church of Antioch of Syria. And I mentioned Antioch of Syria because there are more than one cities known as Antioch. And we'll see another one of those in our study as we move forward in the text, if the Lord wills. But here in Antioch of Syria, of Syria, Barnabas was there, and also this man named Simeon, or Simon, who was called Niger. Now the implication is, because the word Niger is a Roman word, a Latin word meaning black, that he was perhaps of a colored race, the black race in particular. We're not told specifically, but that is the assumption that many make, and I think it's a valid one. But he was also, uh, if that is the case, from North Africa, more likely than not. Lucius was indeed from North Africa. He was from a place called Cyrene. And remember, in 
a previous chapter in the book of Acts, the city of Antioch was first visited by disciples from Cyrene and Cyprus, and they came to Antioch, and they're the ones that ultimately had established the church in Antioch, and apparently Lucius was probably one of those who had done that. So he's from Cyrene, and then Manhattan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's an amazing statement. Here is a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and he was raised either in the same home as, or a friend of, perhaps, Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod Antipas, who was given a quarter of Herod the Great's kingdom. That's why he's called the Tetrarch. That would mean a fourth. And it is he who was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. That same Antipas was befriended by a very, very good acquaintance of this man known as Manaen. And we know nothing more about him than this. But it tells us that the gospel reaches into all areas of our culture. Whether it's black or white, rich or poor, whether it's African or Cyprian or somebody from Tarsus, which is where Saul was from, that's in the region of Asia around the territory of Turkey today. It was then known as Pisidia, and it was there that Saul was born. So these men are all from various places, and they have all gathered into this one city in Syria, and they've begun this church ministry, diverse to say the least, but they were all one in Christ. And take note of the fact that having been together teaching the masses and the multitudes who were coming to the Lord, now we find again in verse 2 that the Spirit of God has a plan for two of these men. It tells us again, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. He had already called them to a specific work. Now it's time for them to fulfill that calling in their lives. Paul, we know, Saul, had already heard from the Lord specifically that he would be a, an apostle to the Gentiles. He would go out and proclaim the gospel to the Gentile populations. And that was a calling that God had placed upon his life. He had known that from the very beginning on the road to Damascus when he first met the Lord and resigned to the fact that Jesus was indeed his Lord. And he has followed him meticulously, religiously serving him. He went down into Arabia for a period of years. He went from there to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem back to his hometown in Tarsus. We don't know what his ministry was like during that period of time, but he was learning as well as teaching, I believe. And God was preparing him for that calling which he had put upon his life. Barnabas had been prepared for that same ministry over a period of many years. This is now 10 or 12 years since the Lord's resurrection. And 
we now see that God is indeed doing a remarkable thing in the church. He's spreading the church not only in Jerusalem, not only in Judea, the region of Judea, not only into the area of Samaria north of Judea, but all over the world, just as Jesus had instructed his disciples. Go into all the world and preach this gospel, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, then into the uttermost parts of the world. They are doing just that. Very effectively now, the word of God is going out. And these two men, Barnabas and Saul, are being chosen by the Lord and it is announced by the Holy Spirit here in Antioch that they are to go in response to the calling that he has placed upon his life. First of all, I want us to know, again, I've mentioned it and I want to reiterate, we all have a calling, no matter what, we may think about our own ability, our own strengths or weaknesses, our own talents or lack of. God has a calling in our lives. That calling is a certain calling. We're told specifically for all believers that we are called to serve Him. And how we serve Him is what we need to learn as we move forward in our living for Him day by day. It's a learning process. It's a sanctifying process. God is doing that in us which He had begun and He has promised to complete it in that day that He makes us to be like Him in glorified bodies. That day has has not yet come. Obviously, it's still yet future. But that day is coming. And we're closer today than when we first believed to that wonderful day, that blessed hope that we have in the return of Christ upon this earth for His saints so that we can live with Him and reign with Him and enjoy the benefits of those glorified bodies that He has planned for us. These are great things that we need to look forward to. In the meantime, we have work to do. We have things that we need to be aware of in our own lives, in dealing with our sinful nature, in dealing with our relationships that we have with others, in dealing with all the things that we have to face throughout our lives, and we need the help of the Holy Spirit to do that. But He's called us. He's chosen us for a particular purpose. And we need to understand that each one of us has a calling that we need to seek to find out what that calling is. If we don't know, it's because simply we haven't taken the time to listen. And many many times our calling can be just a simple calling, a calling to minister in our homes to our children to our other relatives, our family members. It can be many, many different things. But seek to know what the calling of God is on your life. They found out. They knew what God had called them to. And take note of the fact that these are many years now since the original calling for both Barnabas and Saul before they actually are entering into that particular area of service that God had called them to. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen overnight, my friends. I know in my own case... There were 14 years that went by before I realized the fulfillment of that calling that I know that He had placed upon my heart many, many years ago. They had a calling, and they responded to that calling. But take note again in verse 2, something of great importance as well. 
it tells us they, and it's not, I don't, I don't believe that it's only the leadership, but they, the church, ministered to the Lord and fasted. They were committed to hearing the voice of God, the direction that He wanted to give to them. And they were waiting on Him. Now, what does it really mean when it says they ministered to the Lord? You know, we tend to think ministry is all about the pastor ministering to the congregation. So in that sense, the minister is the one who teaches, perhaps, the Word of God. And there's nothing wrong with that understanding of the word ministry. But here, he's not talking about ministering to the church. He's talking about ministering to the Lord. And how do we do that? How did they do that? Well, I suggest that two ways were very obvious to me. I hope it is to you too. One of those is in their praise to their God. You know, again, Psalm 150 is a beautiful psalm of praise, and so are the many other psalms that speak of praising the Lord. And it is in our praising God that we minister to God. Paul the Apostle wrote many things on the idea that is presented with regard to our being responsible to lift our voice to the Lord in praise and in thanksgiving and offering ourselves up as living sacrifices. That's the other area of ministering to the Lord. And we find a very specific statement by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I'd like to read that to you. You don't have to turn there, but it reads this way. Paul the Apostle, now writing to the Roman church, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That is ministering to God. Now, the phrase that is read here in Romans chapter 12 that says we are to do these things because it is our reasonable service. The same root word is given in the book of Acts that we just read in chapter 13, verse 2, where it says they ministered to the Lord. Ministered, reasonable service. They are connected by a root word in the Greek language, which is something that we sometimes refer to as liturgy. If you're familiar with some of the higher church liturgies, like the Episcopal Church or the Catholic Church, their liturgy is a ritualistic program, if you will, where they do certain things in a way that is very standardized. It is what they call their liturgy. And that's the word that is really being, or at least the root of that word that is being used by Luke here in chapter 13. A liturgy is a service to the Lord. They ministered to the Lord. They fasted. And I know that fasting isn't a requirement, but it's mentioned often in the New Testament as being something that they did on a regular basis. So what's the purpose of fasting? It's simply just so that we can draw close to our Lord by not being distracted by something that we normally would participate in or or partake of. A meal, a day, spent in fasting and prayer instead of eating to your heart's content is probably not a bad idea. 
I think that it's wise for us to consider doing something like that, especially when we have a great need, a great desire to serve the Lord, to hear Him speak to us, to know that He is with us, to ask for His help. Fasting, along with prayer, is a very, very good and biblical approach. That's what they were doing here in the city of Antioch. They ministered to the Lord and fasted, and then the Holy Spirit said to them, now we're not told how this was conveyed, either through one of the prophets vocally or through an inner voice to each of them, and they all collaborated with that. I think the Lord is speaking to us here. Well, however it was conveyed, he tells them specifically to separate Barnabas and Saul for the ministry that they had been called to. Then in verse 3 it says, Then having fasted and prayed more, and they laid hands on them, which by the way is not necessarily a, an act that is necessary, but it's basically simply a way of identifying, in this case, the sender with the ones being sent. The laying on of hands is not really anything that is required, but it is done and is seen oftentimes in the Scriptures, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to basically give that sense of unity, identifying with that other person. In the very same way, in the Old Testament, the sinner laid his or her hands on the sacrifice, conveying that sin, transferring his sin to the animal that was to be sacrificed, that innocent one. So there are wonderful examples of the purpose of laying out of hands. But here in this case, they were identifying with those that were being sent in a very special way. They were acknowledging that the Holy Spirit had indeed called them, and they were willing to send them. So it says again in verse 3, Having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now in verse 4 it tells us, So, being sent out by the church? Yes, but more importantly, by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who sent them. The church just simply agreed with the Spirit of God and sent them along in response to what the Holy Spirit had already committed them to do. They are now obedient to sending these men. So first there's a calling upon Paul or Saul and Barnabas. Then they are being sent by the church and more importantly by the Holy Spirit. So they are responding to that calling by going out. And they are going out because they are freely given that great privilege of serving God by the church sending them on their way. Missionary work is a wonderful thing. And this is really the very first recorded missionary work in the church. And we'll be looking at chapters 13 through 28, following the various missionary endeavors, mostly of the Apostle Paul. He went on three recorded missionary journeys. I believe there was a fourth one that isn't recorded in the Word of God that he went on. But this is the very first of those missionary journeys. It appears that they began this missionary journey in around 47 A.D., and it lasted for a couple of years. 
So 46 to 48, or perhaps 47 to 49, is a time frame in which this missionary journey took place. They went a great distance. It's not the greatest distance of all of the missionary journeys, but it's really remarkable that they did this, just the two of them, plus one other individual who started with them, and that's the individual that we mentioned a little bit ago, whose name is John Mark. Again, now he comes into the story in this passage that we're about to read. Verse 4 says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Now, why did they go that direction? Well, it's because the Holy Spirit was leading them to go in that direction. But it's also very likely that Barnabas was influential in the direction that they chose because Barnabas was from Cyprus. And it may very well be that they both, after having prayed and sought the Lord's will, determined that it was the right place to go to begin that missionary journey. So they went on to Cyprus. By the way, Seleucia is on the coastline of the Mediterranean, north of Lebanon, and it is directly northeast of the island of Cyprus, about 75 miles northeast of the island. So they had to take a ship from the port of Seleucia. It was then a very, very impressive port of the Roman colonies. And it was there that they could find a vessel that would be going to the island of Cyprus, most likely. Seleucia was about 16 miles west of the city of Antioch, which is more inland. But now they've taken from there, Seleucia, a boat to the city, or the island rather, of Cyprus. And it says in verse 5, And when they arrived in Salamis, which is the easternmost city on that island, Luke tells us they preached the word of God in the synagogues, plural, of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. Now, this is John Mark, oftentimes just referred to as John, sometimes referred to as John Mark, other times referred to as Mark. And he is the same John Mark or Mark that wrote the gospel that we know of as Mark today. So he's a young man joining with them as their assistant. He's probably in his middle 20s by now. And he travels with them from Seleucia down to Salamis on the island of Cyprus. And take note of the fact that they began their ministry proclaiming the gospel to the Jews in Salamis who attended the Jewish synagogues. And there were apparently many synagogues in that one city. That's why we're given the plural form of the word. They had been given this responsibility and they began preaching the word of God in those synagogues. That was a habit of ultimately the Apostle Paul that he would go into every place that he could and go first to the synagogues where there would be Jews gathering together and some proselytes who would hear the word of God first. And there would be some who would respond to that message that the Apostle Paul would give very favorably, and they would become converts. And I believe the primary reason that Paul did that was because he knew that the majority of Jews who attended those synagogues had a good understanding of the Word of God. They knew the Scriptures. And so he would go there, some would be converted, and he would automatically then have people available to be able to proclaim the truth of God's Word 
having been born again, now able to put all of the dots together and proclaim the gospel message after he leaves, the church would continue to be established and grow in those communities. It was a very wise choice of the Apostle Paul. And in this case, Barnabas, along with Saul, they did that. They went to the synagogues, several synagogues in that one city. It doesn't tell us anything more about Salamis. It doesn't say how many were converted. It doesn't say anything about the results of that ministry. It just says that this is what they did, and they moved on from there. And it tells us now in verse 6, now when they had gone through the island of uh, Cyprus to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was, of all names, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. He was a Jew, but he was a sorcerer. Like Simon the sorcerer in an earlier chapter of the book of Acts that was in Samaria, so this one is in this city on the western side of the island of Cyprus, some hundred miles from Salamis across the island to Paphos, the capital city of the entire island on the western shore. And this Jew is there and he's named Bar-Jesus. I don't know if that's a title that he chose or that that was really, truly his father's name, Jesus. Now, Jesus was a very common name in those days, by the way. Uh, It wasn't just Jesus that we speak of that had that name. Many Jewish women named their sons Jesus. The reason? Because they were hopeful that perhaps their son would be the one that would be the Savior of the world. And that's what Jesus means. God is our salvation. So this man, a sorcerer, had a father whose name was Jesus, and he is son of Jesus. But he's got another name also that Luke will tell us next. He tells us in verse 7 that this man, this Jew, this false prophet, this sorcerer, was with the proconsul, whose name was Sergius Paulus, and he's listed here as an intelligent man. So Luke gives him a favorable uh, acknowledgement of the man's character. And it says also, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. He was interested. He had heard what was going on in the community, and he was curious. He was a Roman citizen, a proconsul was appointed by the Roman Senate, so he was a very, very important figurehead in that island, the entire island. He was the man in charge, the governor over the island, if you will, the proconsul. And he's wanting to know something about what's being said by Saul and Barnabas. But, verse 8, Elemas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now here he's named again by Luke with a different name, not Bar-Jesus, but Elimas. Elimas is apparently an Arabic name. It may have been his true surname. We're not told that. But Luke tells us that he was named this, and it is incidental, perhaps, that his name Elimas, which means Wise man or wizard is the reason why Luke mentions that name here because he sees him as a sorcerer for so his name, Elemas, is translated sorcerer. And this man withstood Barnabas and Saul. 
He did not want the gospel to be heard. And he did everything that was in his power to prevent it. Friends, when we have been called by the Lord to do a certain work, and we have been sent to do that work, and we respond to that having been called and being sent, and going forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can bank on this one thing. There will be opposition. And that is what is being spoken of here. The calling was certain, they were sent, and now they're experiencing opposition. And what would we do if we were to have to deal with such opposition as what they were now facing? Would we be able to do what they were willing to do? Live it out. Work it out. Continue to proclaim. And don't let the opposition cause you to fall. Because the opposition is real. It's definitely not just men that are opposing this work. It is something far, far worse, far different than humankind. It's a spiritual oppression, a spiritual opposition. Satan is behind it. Always has been and always will be until that day when he's no longer able. But it's his desire to thwart the work of God. Do you know that Satan is still active today? And the Bible tells us that he goes around seeking whom he may devour. He's very active in the world. But not only that, he's also going before the Lord God Almighty and accusing the brethren on a regular basis. He's actively involved in trying to put us down, to make us to stumble, to cause us to turn away from the calling that God has placed upon our lives, to do that which He loves to do, destroy and kill. That's His way. He's the father of lies. And He's using Elimas here to oppose the work of God on this island nation of Cyprus. Then Saul... In verse 9, who is called Paul. And this is the first place where now we see, I don't have to try to explain who I'm speaking about anymore. It's Paul from now on. Saul is no longer a name that I have to concentrate on when I'm speaking about the apostle. And I always get them confused when I have to go through these first several chapters of the book of Acts. I say Paul instead of Saul. I say Saul instead of Paul. But now I can say Paul, 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 Paul. It is Paul. He's taken this Roman name. For whatever reason, this is what he is going to refer himself as throughout the entire text of the New Testament, with a couple of exceptions. When he relates his salvation story. In both chapter 16 and chapter 22 of the book of Acts, we will see him refer to himself as having been addressed by the Lord as Saul. I'll try to remember that when we get to that passage so I won't get them confused. But today, I can gladly say, his name is Paul. Then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, listen, this is so important, filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't do anything like this in your own strength. Never, ever try to do this by yourself. Wait upon the Spirit of God who will enable you and 
give you the strength, the power, and the words to speak if it is for you to do. It was indeed by the Spirit of God that Paul speaks these words. It says, Then Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, the sorcerer, and said, Oh, full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? That's pretty specific. That's pretty intense. That's pretty daring. He's speaking to this man who is a person of great wealth, apparently, and has been in the favor of the proconsul of the entire island, and he's speaking these words, very, very, very severe words indeed, but truthful nonetheless. Instead of Son of Jesus, he's spoken of by Paul as the Son of the Devil. He's saying it like it is. Oppression has a source. And it already is revealed as Satan himself. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. It's very similar to what Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, by the way, in John chapter 8. You may recall he was having a conversation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they were talking about the fact that they believed themselves to be sons of Abraham. Jesus ultimately said, you're no sons of Abraham, you're sons of the enemy, of Satan. He didn't like that very much. I'm sure Elymas here did not like what Paul was saying about him. And perhaps he might have been able to take a stand, except for what takes place next. Verse 11 says, And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. He was blinded. That should have been pretty convincing to everyone who was there. I'm reminded Paul himself had that very experience on the road to Damascus. Remember? He was on his way as a Pharisee, and of course his name was then Saul of Tarsus. And he had letters from the high priest to go to Damascus and round up all of the Christ followers that he could find and put them in prison incarcerate and also put some to death. He was gladly doing that which he believed was God's will. He had a zeal for God. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was taught by the greatest teacher in that day, Gamaliel. He sat under that man. He was well respected among the Sadducees. And then he meets Jesus on that road to Damascus. And Jesus speaks to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's response was, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. 
It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then Jesus tells Saul what he's going to have to do. Gives him the details. But in the process of giving those details to Saul, the experience of seeing the glory of Christ in that particular event caused a blindness over him that lasted several days. It wasn't until he arrived in Damascus and Ananias prayed for him that his blindness was removed and he could see again. But there was a period of time that he could not see. He was in total darkness. And I'm sure that Paul likely remembered that event when he spoke these words to Elymas. You shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. It doesn't tell us how much time. It doesn't say anything more about Elymas beyond this point. We don't know if that blindness was removed after Paul had left or however many days it may have been that would have passed. Was Elymas a believer after this event? We don't know. But we do know this. The proconsul became a believer. And verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed. And when he saw what had been done, being astonished, and hearing the teachings of the Lord, salvation came to this proconsul, this Roman leader, this man of great power and wealth. Nothing more is known about what takes place in the island of Cyprus from this point on. In the scriptures that lay ahead of us, Paul and Barnabas will move forward on the next leg of their journey. So we don't know whether Elymas was saved. But we do know that the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, was. We also know a few things about Sergius Paulus, written by historians like Josephus. His full name was Lucius Sergius Paulus. And he was indeed the proconsul on Cyprus. But he had a son who was also appointed by Rome to be a leader in another city in the territory known as Pisidia, which is again today the area known as Turkey. And he was in charge of a large colony in another city known as Antioch, Pisidia. Not Antioch of Syria, but Antioch, Pisidia. Paul is going to continue his journey with Barnabas from the island of Cyprus for over 250 miles north, ultimately to get to that one city of Antioch in Pisidia. And he'll return from there and going through several other places on his journey back to the city of Antioch in Syria and then reporting to the church what God has been doing as they ministered to all of those people in those various places that they had been. Consider this. They didn't have a phone, no cell phones to say, hey, we're in Cyprus, we made it there so far, things are going really good, check back with you later. There was none of that. They could write letters and hope that the letters would ultimately get to the location that they intended, but it would take months to get that communication to them. So there was a very long stretch of time 
between what they had accomplished and what the church in Antioch would hear of. And I wonder, if you and I were in that church at Antioch, having sent Paul or Saul and Barnabas out on this journey, not knowing exactly where they were going to go, not knowing if they were still alive, and then finally after four or five months receiving a note, a letter that says, hey, we made it to Salamis. We're on our way all the way across the island to Paphos. There must have been great joy in the city of Antioch as the church gathered together and say, look what's happening already. Cyprus, there are many people who are getting converted in Salamis and now they're on their way all the way to the other shore and preaching the gospel everywhere they are going. God is doing a mighty work. I can't wait to hear from them again. And then another five or six months go by and they finally get another message. We made it to Paphos. The proconsul got saved. Elimus lost his sight for a season, but the proconsul got saved. And now we're moving on from there, and we're heading as soon as we can to the next stop, which is Pisidia, Turkey today. They'll cross the Mediterranean Sea from the Cyprus island to that shore, and they'll move on by foot across a mountainous terrain all the way to Antioch, Pisidia. And finally, the church at Antioch, Syria, gets another message. Another year passes by. We made it all the way to Antioch, Pisidia. And guess what God is doing here? He's doing a remarkable thing. People are getting saved. The Word of God is spreading like wildfire. The whole world is being turned upside down because of the ministry of God through the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. We are so blessed. Friends, do you want to have that kind of experience? Then pay attention to what they were doing in response to first the calling that God placed on their lives. And then they were sent. And they responded to that purpose that God had placed in their particular situation at the appointed time that God intended. They were indeed sent. And then having been sent... They experienced the opposition of the enemy. But that didn't stop them. That didn't hinder the work. They continued on with no reason to worry about what the enemy could do because they knew they were doing God's work until finally they saw salvation come to not just one, but to hundreds of souls. And on their way through their journey, they must have continued rejoicing that God had called them and sent them. And in spite of the opposition, that God saved many souls. That's what I want for all of us. That we would experience that kind of grand adventure that God can put before us if we would but trust in Him. In these last days, let us pray together fasting and praying that the Lord would put upon our hearts a special calling to do a special work in these last hours. And let us be faithful, if He does so, that we would be willing to go when He sends us. And what the results will be, be glorious, because God is in it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this time together today. We thank you for allowing us to serve you, Lord.
And I pray that there would be, Lord, a move of your Holy Spirit in your church in these last days, that we too would minister to the Lord as they ministered to the Lord, that we too would receive the calling that, Lord, you would put upon each of our lives as they received that calling that you put upon their lives, that you would send us as you sent them, and that in the midst of any opposition that might come our way, we can stand on the solid rock, which is Christ, and see salvation come to many in these last days. Lord, we ask these things for each one here, that you would indeed allow us to minister to you in this way by offering ourselves up as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And not to be conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, may you be glorified in this, Lord God, that we ask of you, that you would allow us to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in each of our lives today. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.